I mean, do you want to go with the real scary or the not so real scary? That's today's guest, James Weaver from the National Federation of State Associations, about to deliver the bad news on just how much you can be fined for violating copyright law. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about today's guest. Dr. James Weaver serves as Director of Performing Arts and Sports at the National Federation of State High School Associations. Previously, he has served as the District Administrator of the Fine Arts and Performing Arts Programs for the Sioux Falls Schools, was Assistant Executive Director in charge of Fine Arts for the South Dakota High School Activities Association and orchestra director in the public schools of Minnesota and South Dakota. Find James's full bio, show notes, and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. What was a high point for you in this interview, Alan? Hearing the confirmation of what Alice Hamill told us was legal, making minor edits to improve accessibility and performability is okay to do. What about you, Steve? This is by no means the exhaustive training that music educators need on this subject, but I can't think of a better way to get the most important information we'd need in under 30 minutes. It's impressive how quickly and easily James can boil down the complicated stuff into the material that we really need to know. It is just nice to have this clear-cut guidance here, and I wish I would have heard a lot of this at the start of my career. <laughs> I'm glad for the statute of limitations. Let's get to James Weaver. James Weaver, welcome to the program. Great. Thank you, guys. Looking forward to it. Well, I hate to start with kind of a downer of a question, but I'm guessing the answer to this might encourage people to listen all the way through to the end of the episode. So how bad can the penalties be for music teachers or schools or school districts who are found guilty of violating copyright law? I mean, do you want to go with the real scary or the not so real scary? <laughs> Let's start with real scary. All right. Go all the way. All go the way. All the way in. All right. So... Uh, the biggest school uh, issue we found was in Houston Public Schools in 2019, where they got awarded a $9.2 million copyright penalty. Uh, that was followed two years earlier, they had a $7 million one. So they're on the hook for $16.2 million in a matter of two to three years. And do we want to know what they did to earn those penalties? Photocopying. And was this a district-wide issue of photocopying or one lone director who caused $16 million worth of damages to their district? Yeah, so the good news is the odds of getting a, uh, a one director to cause $16 million of the damage is pretty low. Uh, so this is a, a systemic issue that they had had. Okay, so that's a systemic-wide, a school district-wide issue with lots of people. What might be not as drastic, but perhaps a little bit more common and maybe related just to the individual? Yeah, so I think that's a that's a much better approach for what we're going to talk about today is the less drastic but more common, right? So one of the things that's less drastic is uh, probably in that seven hundred and fifty to two thousand dollar range uh, for some sort of an infringement. Uh, you know, the penalties uh, range from seven hundred fifty dollars to thirty thousand dollars if you accidentally break copyright law. Uh, if you break it on purpose, it goes up to one hundred fifty thousand dollars. And if you do it with commercial gain, then we're talking like federal prison and lots of money. And we just avoid that in education because we don't really make money off of what we do. Um, but the first two categories are really common in education. And so I would say what I see most often with a copyright infringement is a copyright owner going up to a director or a program or a school saying, hey, you had an infringement. It's going to cost you $1,000. Just don't do it again. And then they pay the $1,000 and they're they're now much more the wiser on copyright infringement. And so that's... Uh 
quick and not totally painless, but we're not going to court. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not going to be massive public embarrassment. Just a hey, we know you probably didn't know this was an issue. We're going to need you to pay a little bit and not do it again. That's that's pretty common. That is more common. Yeah. So what happened a lot was the uh, like pre-pandemic and it's a little bit different now, but pre-pandemic in the say the theater and speech world, they say, you know, it's double royalties for this particular production because you didn't get the right stuff. And double royalties could be anywhere between, you know, five hundred and two thousand dollars kind of a thing in the music space. It's it's a little bit different because there's a little more leeway to it because we don't have kind of set royalties with contractual things. So it's a bit more complicated, but what we see a lot is kind of a thousand dollar thing. And it's painful because some schools will say, well, director, you should have known better. Uh, So this is your thousand dollars to pay, which is a lot. Like I would not want to get my pay docked a thousand dollars for copyright infringement. Uh, Sometimes if it's more than that, if they have like multiple infringements and it becomes in the tens to $20,000, that's when the uh, school district's insurance program starts getting involved. Okay. That's interesting. So it very much at the at the outset is a director issue. Director, you violated copyright law, mm-hmm. and so this is your issue, and you need to pay. and And the district is not really on the hook for that until it reaches a broader scope. Is that what I'm hearing you say? No, I think what happens is uh, some of that stuff is used by districts to educate the directors to not do that again. Right. Got it. So the district is always on the hook because at the end of the day, uh, they're the ones that own that product, whether it was done. Legally or not legally. Okay, well, we'll get into some more specifics in a bit. But in uh, first, I'm just kind of curious in your conversations with music educators, what are some of the most common things that teachers might think are okay, but they're either not okay or there's a pretty fine line between okay and not okay? Yeah, so I have a whole list of stuff for this. So uh, <laughs> bring it, bring it on. <laughs> all right. Yeah, it's interesting because. People are, are always thinking about these urban legend things like, oh, if I photocopy this music and I have a, I have an original for every copy I make, that should be okay. Well, that's not okay, right? Like that takes the consumability out of that particular piece of sheet music. Or I'm only using 10% of the piece, so I can do what I want with that. Uh, that's also not okay. Like one of the things I always I tell people when I give my copyright spiels is think of copyright and how much you use as the name that tune game. As soon as you can name that tune, that is now a performable unit that could be infringement upon copyright. And we need to really be thinking about this in those terms because, you know, if you think of like Beethoven's uh, Fifth Symphony, for example, uh, let's pretend it's not in the public domain. The first four measures are a very small part of that entire symphony, but those first four measures build the entire symphony, right? So is it a significant part as far as the amount? Probably not. Is it a substantial part as far as the overall symphony work? Absolutely. And so you really can't go on that 10% rule. Um, You know, other areas that we have is the, oh, you know, it's for education use, so this is fine. Uh, That's really not accurate because you're still creating a harm to the copyright owner. And the harm to the copyright owner isn't on like whether the music teacher or the program or anybody made money. The harm is the fact that there's a lack of permission or a lack of funds going to them that really creates the harm. So I think that's something that a lot of people forget about in education is they're thinking, 
oh, well, I'm not making money off of this, so there's no harm anywhere. But that's not the actual harm that was occurred. You mentioned photocopying. Let's just dive right into that. What are some of the most important considerations when it comes to photocopying? Or is, is that simply just don't do it? Yeah. So, I mean, the easiest way to do it is to to understand is don't photocopy, right? Like that's the number one thing. Um, what's interesting about photocopying is if I put myself back in my teacher seat, which has been a long time, so I am past the statute of limitations on copyright persecution. So here we go. Uh, I can admit all my wrongdoings. I'm way past that point. But, you know, you everyone on this uh, podcast is going to remember you set your cop machine down to 93% and you put your music on there. That's the size to take the music down to an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And we all know this and we all know that's probably wrong, right? It says right at the bottom of all those things, do not reproduce this. Uh, Do not photocopy. And it's very clear on that. Uh, And the reason why is when photocopying um, your sheet music is designed to be a consumable product. And that consumability is dependent on you handing it out to your students, having them write on, play on, make notes, hand it back in. And over the course of time, that music becomes less and less usable. And then you're supposed to replace that. Well, if you take photocopies and keep your pristine version inside your music library, you've taken the consumability out of that product completely. And that's where we start having harm to the publishers and those kinds of things. Uh, They rely on us buying music for them to stay in business. And the less we buy music, the less they stay in business. This is the reason why we've seen so many publishers over the course of the last 30, 40 years be bought up by larger publishers over the course of time because they can't make it in the marketplace uh, because we've taken so much consumability out of the market. That being said, are there some occasions where it is okay to photocopy printed music yes but they're very rare right so like one of the spots would be during an emergency case so when you have an imminent performance an imminent can be in the next five minutes or in six months from now depending on what piece you're playing right so if you're playing a rental and your oboe player gets in a car accident and they are fine the instrument's fine but their car exploded and the music's on fire and they no longer have it you can make a photocopy of another oboe part and have them go ahead and play the performance because that's going to be an emergency copy exemption. However, you have to purchase that part uh, in due course. Other than that, that's the only time you're really allowed to do photocopying with the exception of uh, like score study material or uh, music theory practice inside the classroom. What about, say, an acquire the piano accompanist to facilitate a page turn? Is we just need to buy an extra copy just for that one page to have sitting off to the right? By the strict letter of the law, you're, you're not supposed to do that. Um, you know, I would say let's contact the publisher and be like, hey, due to your editing skills, I have a page turn that's possible. <laughs> Can I go ahead and take a copy? Most of the times I'll be like, yeah, not, especially if you put it nicer than how I just phrased it. What about scanning and then using that to either email or allowing students to access on some sort of device? What do we need to know about that? The Teach Act of 2002 really allowed for the distribution, digital distribution of a lot of copyrighted materials through what's called learning management systems. The whole idea with that is that they become copyright compliant through the Teach Act by saying my students are enrolled in my class. They have a school-based email address. They only have access to this while they're officially registered in my class. And uh, when we distribute, say, music, for example, uh, they can distribute music through their LMS and uh, practice off their device. But what they should make sure they do is turn off the download and the print capabilities for those documents. 
uh, that makes sure they're still in compliance for those things. The same is true for like concert views on um, recordings. They can go ahead and distribute those recordings to the students of their concerts and then have them do their concert view on there. And the reason why that's okay is it acts as the archival copy and the distribution is restricted to those students who are in, in an enrolled class. My understanding and, and what I try to tell my students is basically if you are distributing or copying, scanning to avoid the purchase of printed music, that's that's a good way to know that it's wrong. Yep. So in this case, if uh, my choir has 60 students in it, I still need to buy 60 copies of the Octavo, even though I'm only scanning one. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. And same for a concert band. If I have if I have the good fortune to have more tubas than than the published parts, where I need to buy a couple extra published parts, even if I'm scanning it. Correct. Yeah. Or the other option is to contact the publisher and say, "I need permission for this because for some reason I have 17 alto saxophones in my band, and you only had six parts in there. Uh, time to hand some more over, or I need to get permission." And so my original question mentioned also emailing. And am, am I to gather from your answer that basically, no, never scan an email copyrighted material? There's not really going to be a situation where that would be okay because it's not possible to uh, disable print and to disable uh, sharing. Well, and not only that, but you're also distributing it beyond the scope of the Teach Act, right? Because if you're, just, if you're emailing it to someone that's not registered in the class, that is now an illegal copy and illegal distribution of that particular copyrighted material. Let's talk a little bit about when we're rehearsing some published or stock arrangements or compositions with our groups. Are there some basic things that teachers can do to modify or change and know that they're not going to uh, be slapped with a fine or end up in uh, in federal prison? Yeah, well, let's just be clear. Most orchestra teacher or most music teachers will never go to federal prison for copyright law. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Now there's still not, I'm not going to say all because somebody's going to try to prove me wrong on that at some point. Um, but by and large, you're probably not going to go to prison for this. Fines are a different issue, right? So when you have a stock arrangement or something like that, um, the, there's a, a few things you can do that the copyright law allows. One of them is you're able to um, make minor edits. And I think that's a great way to do things. So a minor edit would be and I'm going to make fun of bass players for a moment. I am a bass player. So all bass players listening just know that it's not personal. Um, but like bass players, all right, I've got bass players that can't play 16th notes. Uh, and we're going like octave jumps, something 16th notes. You can eliminate that down to eighth notes. And that's not a problem. You can reduce things down an octave if you need to. Um, or up an octave if you need to, depending on what you're playing uh, or singing. Uh, so you can make those minor edits. You can also, uh, you know, if you need to take out a repeat, you can take out a repeat. That's not a problem. Like those kind of minor edits for performance sake are easier to do. Uh, what you cannot do is change lyrics. Uh, that is something that I think is a, bis a big misnomer. Uh, and if you want to do a, a piece in choir that has uh, profane language, that doesn't matter. You have to have permission to change that word, uh, no matter what, even if it's school appropriate or not, um, you have to have that permission. The other thing that uh, is not allowed would be like a Picardy third. And I know that everyone's out there being like, I'm going to get my free the Picardy third shirts out and we're going to storm the storm the music buildings in all campuses across the country. But 
the Picardy third would be a major edit, but otherwise things that would be defined as a minor edit would be simple rhythmic changes, simple note changes, uh, as long as most of the structure remains intact. Who decides the difference between a major edit and a minor edit? Yeah, so the copyright owners are the ones that decide that. Um, by and large, there's a, a pretty general idea of what a major and minor edit is. I would say anything that changes the timbre or the directionality of that piece or the lyrics of that piece would be considered a major edit. It's things that also could be a minor edit was I don't have any tubas in my band. So Steve, the opposite of what you were saying before. Um, so I need to take that tuba part and put it in the trombone section. That's also not an issue. That's a minor, that'd be a minor edit. But if you take that tuba part and put it in the oboe, in the oboe section, uh, which would be weird if you have enough oboes and not enough tubas, um, you know, that would be considered a major edit because you're really changing the timbre of that piece by that point. So the other thing to think about too is if you're making changes you feel would constitute a, an arrangement, chances are you've now made major edits. So would that include purchasing a stock uh, choral arrangement mm -hmm. and then adding some uh, instrumental parts to make it work for show choir? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, right. So that would be a part where, um, you know, getting the publisher permission for that would be probably important. Um, and it's not that that permission is going to be hard to get. I, I will tell you that because all you're saying is, hey, I'm doing this piece. I know it's stock. We're not changing the choir piece. We're going to keep the piano and drums and bass part that you brought with it. But I need to add some some of my middle school trumpets. Is that kind of what you're thinking? We're like build that band yep. more. Yeah. Um, most of the publishers will give you good permission for that. Um, so, it, but it is always good to ask for permission because let's say that a parent. Uh, recorded that on YouTube and pop, popped it up there and the publisher sees it because it's off. It's very good. And they didn't have permission to do that. There might be an issue that would arise from that. You mentioned recordings earlier. What do we need to know about video and audio recordings of our performances? Are, are things different from video to audio? Is it okay to put them on Facebook or on YouTube? Are we ever able to sell them as fundraisers for our programs? What are what are some of the basics we need to understand there? Oh, yeah. So, so real basics are in recording. You can and should record all your performances. Uh, the school's allowed one archival copy of every performance. Now, what that archival copy means is that you are not allowed to distribute it. You're supposed to use it for the educational value inside your classroom to the students enrolled in your class. And that's what that means. So that's why when I mentioned earlier with the teacher act materials, you can distribute that through your LMS and say, everybody, great concert last night, hopefully. Uh, let's watch this and come back with your thoughts the next day or whenever. You can do that. You can watch it in your classroom. What you can't do is make 100 copies of it and give it to all your parents. That would be an illegal distribution of that performance. Now, if you want to distribute it to your parents, there are ways to do that. Uh, if you're going to do a video and audio, you need synchronization rights for that. Uh, that can only be given to you by the copyright owner. Um, and those are difficult to get, but not impossible to get. If you're going to just do audio recordings and distribute those, those are super easy to get. Uh, those are mechanical licenses, and they're compulsory, they're inexpensive, and they're easy uh, to apply for and get. And they're basically instant. You just go to harryfox.com, type in your pieces, you know, nine, cent, nine cents of a cent per... Um, so that's that's actually pretty simple to do. And once you have the permissions to do these things, you can sell any of them, right? So, but you have to ask for those permissions. Like on the synchronization, if we go back to like a DVD or something, um, you'd have to say, hey, I want to make a hundred copies of this. I want to sell to my parents for 10 bucks. Uh, so they have this kind of like our year in review of all of our concerts. They would 
either give you cheap permissions uh, on that regard, uh, but those things would add up over time for video. For audio, like I said, it's compulsory. So you have to, you're able to get the license instantly without having additional permissions and you can sell those when you're done. Um, as far as putting them online, that becomes a little bit more uh, funky. So you would need synchronization permissions to do that, uh, to put it online. Most publishers, it's a weird balance point, right? Because a lot of publishers are like, if it's on there, I'm going to sell more copies of it, especially if it's a good piece. The flip side of that is like if a band or a choir or an orchestra is getting a million views, there's revenue generated there, which a portion of that should belong to the public, should belong to the copyright owner. And so we got to really balance on like what is good for creators' rights and what is good for the school's rights. And so I think it's always best to have permission on those things. I'm not saying you have to go to YouTube and Facebook and take all your stuff down right now, um, but you should probably moving forward, have a little more caution in making sure we're um, asking for those permissions. What about just a live stream on Facebook of the concert that is taken down immediately afterwards? So it's only happening in the moment. Yeah. So if your school has a public, um, a public performance license, uh, that includes live streaming of your concerts. Uh, and the live stream, I just reminded everybody, live stream is I'm playing it in real time. It's going out on the internet in real time. When I stop playing, that stops playing, and then it goes away. That's a live stream. During the pandemic, we heard a lot of people saying, well, I'm going to record it at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, but we're going to live stream it on at 7 o'clock. That should be okay. That is not a live stream. That is a distributed recording. You mentioned the public performance license, and if my school has one, I can do a live stream. Uh, can we talk a little bit about that? What is that? Does every school just automatically have one? Do I need to be applying for that as my school's choir director, or how does that work? Yeah, so not every school has one automatically. I would recommend every school get one. Uh, we've negotiated with several PROs, which is the Performing Rights Organizations, so BMI, GMR, ASCAP, those guys. Um, to get them down pretty pretty low in cost. And what I would do if I were a music teacher listening to today, I'd say, hey, it's time for me to talk to my athletic director about buying this license for the school. And the reason why is that even though we would use it in music, most of the stuff that they would actually use it for would be on the athletic side. So playing pregame music, halftime music, pep bands playing at the football game, those kinds of things all need public performance licenses. And most of what they do is on the athletic side, not necessarily on the music side. Do I need that license for my band, orchestra, or choir to play just their Hal Leonard published music at our next concert, even if we're not recording or streaming it? No. So what the purchase of that music allows you to do is practice it educationally in the classroom, take it from that classroom setting to your auditorium setting, perform it for a live concert as the intention of learning music, and then going back, anything beyond that would then require public performance licensing. Can I charge admission for that concert? Absolutely. As long as the money goes back to the educational institution. So just at the risk of over-clarification or simplification, that public performance license, as it pertains to us music teachers, we only need to worry about that if we're doing some sort of distribution uh, digitally. or But just playing the music live, rehearsing the music live, we don't need it. Yeah, I would say, well, kind of. So I would say you don't need the public performance license if all you're doing is playing a from rehearsal room to concert hall concert or an adjudicated performance. So the only two things you don't need it for, if you go beyond those scopes, then you'll need to have a public performance license. Like if we go over to the mall at Christmas time to play for the, 
for the customers that yeah. we would need a license, the public performance license for that. You got it. Or go to like the Kiwanis Club with the choir and sing Christmas carols during their lunch meeting or whatever. Yeah. Those licenses are really easy to get and they're not that expensive. So you've been referencing contact the publisher to get permission either to do this or to perhaps obtain a, a license or, or, or whatever, pay to arrange that concert band piece for marching band. Mm -hmm. What are our options for doing that? You mentioned Harry Fox earlier for securing a mechanical license. What about getting permission? Can I just call someone at Hal Leonard? What that It seems a little overwhelming. Yeah, uh, I mean, you could, but the easiest way to do it is to email everybody um, because then you also have their response in writing and that's better and they can sort through things better. So uh, on our website, we've got a lot of resources they can look at and it's edofhs.org uh, slash resources slash copyright and we can make sure that gets somewhere. But then one of the best resources for contacting publishers is actually the Music Publishers Association. And on their website, they actually have all the publishers plus all the publishers imprints. And so like for Hal Leonard, for example, if I want to talk to one of the publishers doing something a little bit different than what the Hal Leonard permissions are, they'll have the 300 plus uh, publisher imprints that Hal Leonard also oversees. Uh, and all of those links have contact information uh, with like, oh, you want to do licensing or you want to do derivative works or, you know, whatever. Uh, they'll have either a different phone number or a different email address uh, embedded on those profiles of all the publishers. So that's a great resource to have. And I think that's like mpa.org. Uh, and that'll take you to the Music Publishers Association. That's great resource to have on your website for people seeking permission. Do you have any other resources that uh, our listeners might find valuable? Yeah, if you go to nfhslearn.com and search for the co Understanding Copyright Compliance, uh, we have a compliancy course there that's a free course for everybody, whether you're elementary, middle school, high school. Um, it's designed in five different tracks for music, speech debate, theater, cheer, dance, and there's an administrator track as well. Uh, our uh, board has determined that this course will be free. It's going to be considered in our health and safety packages. And so it'll always be free for any user, whether you're an NFHS member or not. And so you can go there, take the course. The music one, I apologize, is long, but it is go at your own pace. So if you can do 10 minutes a day, it'll pick up right where you left off the next day. Uh, and it does come with continuing education units because NFHS Learn is an accredited education supplier. And so you can give that certificate to your principal at the end of the day, and you now have content-specific professional development. Well, James Weaver, thank you very much for joining us to discuss these important topics today. Can we close down with a few lightning round questions? Let's shoot them at me. All right. Good luck with this one. Your favorite place to eat in Indianapolis. That's hard. So Indianapolis, people may not know, but it's such a great food city. There's everything from like the Rathskeller on Mass Ave, St. Elmo's downtown. Um, you know, maybe like the Marriott Marriott down. We have like a thousand of them downtown. Like the Marriott Marriott has a, like great old fashions and some amazing truffle chips. So I don't know. I'd go with those three are probably my top ones. A musical artist or piece of music that you wish more people knew about? So this is one my, my daughter makes fun of me on. If you've never heard Old Friends by Ben Rector, um, it's worth to listen to, especially if you watch the YouTube video. And uh, my daughter makes fun of me because the older I get, the harder that song seems to hit me. And um, yeah, so apparently I'm becoming emotional as I get into my older age. So that's a great song. 
Do you have a book recommendation for our listeners, ideally that doesn't have anything to do with music? Uh, probably one of the best books I have that's non-musical but still really solid for professional use would be Crucial Conversations. Um, it's by four different authors like Patterson, Grenny, McKillen, and Schweitzler, I think. Uh, but it's a great book on how to communicate not only in your normal life, but in your professional life and with uh, superiors and subordinates. It's, it's a great book to read. What do you miss most about being an orchestra teacher? Everything, basically. Uh, I really love teaching. Uh, the thing I think I miss the most is the students, right? I get to watch them grow. I get to see their light bulb moments turn on. I get to celebrate their successes with them. I get to guide them through their hardships. Uh, and I'm really fortunate because two of my former students are now teaching my former program. And so that's kind of fun to watch them as they grow it into their own thing. And finally, what do our listeners need to know about the NFHS? What is it? Yeah, so we are the largest organization that you've never heard of. Um, so, But we are the organization that assists states in overseeing in the administration of middle and high school level activity programs. And I think our, our biggest thing we do is we're not just athletics and we're not just music or theater or speech today. We're kind of all high school programs. We really promote the um, participation, fair play, sportsmanship, and high quality access to all these programs in all schools. Well, I have definitely found your organization and you in particular uh, an extremely valuable resource personally, and I'm grateful to have had you on the program today. Great. Thank you. I've really enjoyed my time here today. Dr. James Weaver, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, super practical stuff. I'm also grateful about the statute of limitations. <laughs> you and me both. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musiced insights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.